This is Michael Easley in Context, and it's a great, fun day because I got my brother, my friend, my pal, Mo Proctor, sitting across from me in studio, looking svelte. You just came from the gym. I did. <laughs> <laughs> You're pumped up. You're pumped up. Thanks for coming by. Oh, glad to be here. Mo Proctor and I, also known as Morris, we go back... Well, I know it was pre-Emanuel because I got onto Logos when it was two, you know, back when it was a whole stack of floppy disks before CDs even. Yeah. Were you involved with it that early? I came on at Logos 2 early on. So I've got my first copy in 97, started training late 97, 98. Were you at that uh, I may have, I may have actually been before you. Yeah, you probably um, were. Yeah. I mean, using I had it, CDs. Using, I yeah, yeah. I think when I was at both Grand Prairie, I know Grand Prairie and Emmanuel, I would go to Camp Logos. For those of you that don't know, Mo is a trainer for Logos Bible Software. If you listen to me, you know I talk about it all the time. I use it every day. It's on all my devices. I sometimes worry, Mo, that I don't know how to study the Bible <laughs> apart from opening my Logos on my, uh, I guess we should call it, we're supposed to call it Faith Life now. Well, the company technically is Faith Life, and Faith Life makes Logos Bible software. But you know, I still refer to the company as Logos. They don't get on to me too. Bad. A lot of my uh, older pastor mentor friends are loath to technology and loath to change, and I have tried so many times to encourage them. I said, "You guys, you're working with a slide rule, and you've got a handheld calculator available to you." Well, they like their slide rule, and you have to be old <laughs> enough to even know what that means, right? Exactly. Give us a little bit of Mo Proctor's story. Where did you grow up? When did you come to Christ? Those kind of things. Well, I grew up in Nashville, born and raised over in— One the, of the few. Yeah. So <laughs> and now in Murfreesboro, those who know the area, just 20, 30 minutes southeast of Nashville. But I grew up over in the Donaldson, Opryland area and had a— quote, church background, like a lot of people at that time in Sunday school, but didn't really understand the Lord, discipleship, Bible study. In 1980, we got a new pastor at our church. I was attending the Donaldson Fellowship. Our good friend Rob Morgan became the pastor there. And so I was a freshman in college, and it was just sort of a sovereign encounter was a God thing. I'll spare you all the details of how that initial phone phone call, but I I remember I was at a friend's house and Rob called because he had called my house and they said, oh, he's over to a friend's house. So he called at a friend's house and asked for me. And (laughs) and this is pre-cell phone days, probably. Exactly. And so he asked, hey, I'm starting a Bible study with a couple of guys. Would you like to join us? I said, sure. So we would meet at the Cracker Barrel on Friday mornings, 5, 6 o'clock. And I'm a night owl, not an early morning person. And so that was quite the sacrifice. And he took me through, and there were three guys, took us through Design for Discipleship, NAV. So we would— meet, get our assignments, go home, study the Bible, fill in the blank. But Robin and I developed a friendship, and he just took me under his wing, taught me Bible study, inductive Bible study, expository preaching. So I'm still a freshman learning all this stuff, then a sophomore, and then ended up that sophomore year just really sensing the Lord saying, hey, I've got a different direction for your life. So I ended up going to Bible college and graduated and became Rob's associate pastor again at the Donaldson Fellowship and served with him for uh, several years. We're still today, Mm -hmm. obviously, very good friends. I'm 60 years old now, but I still affectionately refer to him as my mentor, my pastor. So uh, just like my 
coaches. I still refer to as coach. There and, you go. Uh, so uh, it's just a term of endearment. So I'm very grateful for all that he deposited in me. So he taught me how to study with books. So I'm like a lot of pastors, teachers, spread out books on my yep. desk and carry them around uh, from home to office. And cases. Yep. yep. And then yeah. in 97, my friend gave me my first copy of Logos. And I wasn't a computer person by any stretch of the imagination. And so Logos back then had a print manual and yeah. a, a print book. So I literally would just go through it. And I didn't know how to use computer. I had friends who used computers. So I would call them more than I would. <laughs> it was more, how do I do this on the computer? So anyway, uh, went through that book several times. I still have that original book. Yeah. And, and it's highlighted in yellow or pink, I believe, the number of times I went through it. And then I started telling my pastor buddies, hey, you need to get Logos. They would get it. And they said, hey, that's great. How do great. I use it? <laughs> so I started training a few of them just as sort of as a hobby, as a friend, we'd get together. And I'm a teacher, so before long, I'd start making handouts. Okay, we're going to cover this this week, yeah. that kind of thing. And I had a friend in this church who was an executive at Thomas Nelson, and this was in the late 90s. And uh, Thomas Nelson was starting to use Logos for their electronic books. So Logos would make the Thomas Nelson product and then stamp it uh, Thomas Nelson, but it was all okay. Logos and everything was integrated. And so he told the Logos folks what I was doing with the local pastors. They asked me to come out in 98 and they were doing at that point, they'd had a couple of these that they called Camp Logos. They'd bring in Logos users from across the globe just to study, but their developers and their employees were teaching, and developers are great at developing, but sometimes communication their is technical not. technical <laughs> language doesn't always communicate to pastors and users, yeah. So anyway, I went yeah. out in 98 at their invitation and trained the people coming in, and it was just, a, again, a, a sovereign encounter, and they sort of deputized me, and they said, hey, we're you're who we've been looking for. You can take what we write and communicate it. So I've been doing that since 98, so what is that, Twenty. Four years. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, I can't remember the first Camp Lagos I went to, even if that's what it was called. It was, yeah. I think it was Houston, but I drugged my friend Dave Gibson and some other, and we went, and I've been, I don't know, six, probably seven times. I don't know how many times, but through that, we became friends, and you've been kind enough to let me call you. You go, Mo, how do I do this on Lagos? <laughs> and you go, well, you idiot. All you do, you know, you go, Click here. Oh, I didn't know about that feature. But anyway, for those of you that don't know what in the world I'm talking about, Logos Bible Software, if you go online, there is a free version of it called Faith Life Bible. Is that correct? Yeah. You can go to logos.com and do in the search box, just type the word basic. basic. And they have a basic library. And uh, there's a couple dozen books, basically, that you will have access to, including the Lexham Bible Dictionary, Faith Life Study Bible, and other resources. So even with the, the basic library, absolutely free, no credit card required, you can have access to a well-rounded library. Um, I've done a couple of trainings at local churches where that's all I've used mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. the basic library because it's a bigger library than the quote average Christian family would have in print. In right. Right. I was trying to look for the, the app because I typically use it on my tablet or my computer, but I think it's a little green app on the Android. I don't know what it looks like on the iPhone world, but anyway, you can yeah. download it free and the other thing that's really cool about the even the free version is if you're a small group leader or a discipleship guy or gal, you can have a private prayer thing in there and send updates. And I mean, you could use it basically as a 
full-sourced Bible social media network for a small closed group. Yeah. And in the app store, they can just search for uh, Logos Bible. Okay. And then whatever they do on the desktop, they will show oh, up on the... Oh, that's magical uh, now. Yeah. Yeah. And then and there's also a web app. It doesn't get as much attention, right. but everything integrates and different formats have different features. But the mobile app has really grown in power. Well, it's, it's become robust. I remember early on using it on an iPad or a, or a tablet, and you, you were kind of like... <laughs> And then later you actually got into it and gave a whole seminar on it. And what I love about it, like highlighting and taking notes feature if I'm traveling and I have my tablet in my lap, and that's a really good point. You know, and now my fingers are like, you know, stubs. So highlighting is still a challenge on the tablet. But highlighting and taking some notes. And then when I open my desktop in a matter of seconds, voila, everything yeah. I put on my tablet and vice versa. Yeah. So anyway, it's an indispensable tool. I tell people back to the catalog cases, it was my father-in-law's drafting table, one of the big four-poster drafting tables, and I had refinished it, and I had it up at an angle, and I would spread all my commentaries and bag and uh, the Bar Art and Gingrich and, and the lexicons, and I would put these big weights on them to hold the books open, <laughs> and this little notebook computer, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if this was all in one resource? And there you have it. So thanks to Bob Pritchard and all his brilliant engineers. But anyway, so the love of studying the Bible, and Rob's been on the program many times, Rob Morgan, you may know him if you don't know him. The book Red Sea Rules is probably one of his bestsellers. And then he wrote a newer book, The Jordan Sea Rules, which we've had him on this podcast talking about. He, a dear, dear friend of, of both yours and mine. Small world, Christian world. But all I have to say, was it Rob that kind of instilled in you the disciplines of getting in the Word? Was he the Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question. I so mean, would you say we need a Rob in our lives? We need somebody that gets us in the book? Yeah. I've likened Rob to Paul, to mm -hmm. me, to Timothy. There's no question that I'm very grateful for all the books and the education and the seminars and stuff, but there was no substitute for my personal friendship with Rob, that weekly meeting, mm -hmm. and Rob saying, okay, how was your quiet time this week? What did you read? What is the Lord speaking to you about? Okay, and then, so I would share with them, and then, you know, the following week, okay, how did you do with what you told me last week? So there was a personal friendship developing, but there was also that mentor-mentee relationship, discipler-disciplee mm -hmm. relationship. So that that part was indispensable. And I find it it's so basic, and yet, Mo, we just don't seem to do it. I mean, churches don't do it. I always kind of curl my lip when I hear churches, we're going to start a discipleship program. We're going to take people through this process. I'm a cynic. You know that. I get very jaded and curmudgeon but I just I lean back and go, it doesn't have to be this complicated. Exactly. Just start getting together on a regular basis and read a paragraph of the Bible and talk about it and train them to look at observations, not opinions, and train them how to use the cross-references. I mean, the setting aside logos. Exactly. Just get your nose in the book, and it's it's not that hard. Why do we not do this more routinely? Yeah, because it is a sacrifice. I mean, I, I'm like you. I don't want to just be jaded, but it is a sacrifice both for the discipler and the disciple. Time. Yeah, time. And I but, remember, but once you get into it, you love it. Yeah. Like you said, how many years do you and Rob been friends now? Yeah. You know, and, and people that I learned from, I mean, lifelong friendships where we argued and studied about the Bible together. Yeah, it, it is. And you were talking about the discipline. I still remember, I still have it. It's held together with duct tape. But Rob gave me my first 
study Bible. It was a New American Standard, Ryrie study yeah. Bible. Brown cover, yep. I mean, it's falling apart, but it's all marked up. And he's the one that taught me to read and mark and think about something that you've uh, marked in your quiet time. But even during the week, I mean, he would call me, I would call him. I still remember Rob being out on, uh, you know, it's a Baptist church, so we were really big into visitation. And so Rob just stopping by after visitation <laughs> and just hanging out. I was sort of like the little brother he never had. There was that formal relationship, yeah, sure. but there, there was a But it a became personal. friends. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I would say the same with Howard Hendricks and me. You know, Howard was my, Dr. Hendricks, my professor. I mean, he was always Dr. Hendricks, and then I got used to calling him Prof, and then I always used the definitive article, The Prof. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember, again, Baptist background, and we were sort of conservative, so there were a lot of people in our church. You had to preface the pastor with Pastor Morgan or Brother Morgan. Back then, it was more brother. And so I remember once standing up doing the announcements in the service, and I just referenced Rob as Rob, and I had an elderly gentleman pull me aside. Don't you ever do that, young man. (laughs) (laughs) He probably still hasn't forgotten that, if he's still around. You teach for us from time to time here at Stonebridge Bible Church, where I serve as a teaching pastor and we're so blessed to have Rob come over on occasion and you and others and our congregation has fallen in love with your messages. And so when I'm out, they're like, is Mo speaking? And I go, well, yeah, don't you miss me? Uh, but but they truly do love your teaching. And I had you speak uh, March 27, 2022. I had to be out of town for some reason. And you came in and I listened to the sermon the next day. I watched it online and we're going to play the opening introduction you did, you did this without a note. You made eye contact with the audience. And I know you well enough to know this isn't easy for you. It takes a lot of hard work and discipline to do what you did that morning. And you can listen to it now. You're going to listen to it now, but you need to watch it if you want to see what I'm talking about. But from a preaching teaching angle, Haddon Robinson said, teachers look at their notes, pastors and communicators look at their people. And you looked at the people that day. So we'll listen to that opening, and then I want to come back and make some comments and ask some questions. We're going to be reading Jesus' Prayer in Gethsemane, and we're going to get there in a moment. But I want to take my time for a few minutes here and set things up. You need to know what preceded the events in Gethsemane. Now, if you are new to the Bible. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, along with Mark and Luke and John, were followers of Jesus, and they each wrote an account of Jesus' life, and we call these the gospel accounts. And sometimes each of these gospel accounts will have the same event, like the one we're going to be reading about, and so when we read the event in different gospels, then we can pick up little details that maybe the other one didn't emphasize. So as we go through this, we're going to camp out in Matthew, but I'm going to be pulling in details from the other gospel writers so that we can have the complete picture in stereo, if you will. And so we're going to be following the traditional church calendar or the Christian calendar. Traditional church calendar said Jesus is crucified on Friday, Good Friday. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is the night before on Thursday. Now, during the day on Thursday, Jesus sent out a couple of his disciples, and he said, I want you to go and prepare in the upper room the Passover so that I can celebrate the meal with you. 
And so the disciples did. So it's now Thursday evening. Jesus and his buddies are in the upper room. It's a house in Jerusalem, if you will. And a lot of things start happening. During the Passover meal, Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. He picked up bread and he said, this is my body. He picked up a cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then the disciples during the meal started arguing with one another, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus, hearing their argument, begins to wash their feet. But John says, before he washed their feet, he made this comment. John said, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come for him to depart from this world and return to the Father, then got up and washed their feet. And then Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. The Son of Man is going to go as it has been written about him. But woe to the one who betrays me. It would be better for him had he never been born. And then Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you. So where I am, you can be also. And then Jesus said, I'm not going to talk a lot more right now because look, the ruler of the world is coming. But listen, he has nothing in me. And then they sang a hymn and left the upper room. Everything I just described took place in that upper room. Now, they leave the upper room, and they start descending through Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is on a hill. They're going downhill. On the eastern side of the city, of course, there's a wall. There's a big gate. So they go out of the gate on the eastern side, and then they are making their way downhill through what we call the Kidron Valley or the Kidron Ravine. So down in the valley, and then they start up the slope on the other side for the Mount of Olives, and we're going to get there in just a moment. That's where we have the Garden of Gethsemane. But before they get there, Jesus is talking. They've left the upper room. They're walking, and he is doing a lot of talking. And he says, hey, you need to know all of you are going to fall away from me. But I want you to know, after I have been raised, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And he said in John 15, no man has a greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. Jesus said, I know you're grieved because I'm talking about going away. He said, but you need to understand it's actually for your advantage that I go away because when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to be in you and guide you and teach you. And Jesus said, in a little while, you're not going to see me and you're going to be very sad. But in a little while, after the little while, you're going to see me again and oh, you're going to have joy. And then we get to John 17, which we call the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. All of that happened before we get to Gethsemane. Now, the reason I went through all of that is because I'm making a big point here. Did you see how many times Jesus talked about his death? And then he said, I'm going to be raised, and I'm going to go back to the Father, and I'm even coming again for you. 
Jesus was totally aware of everything that was going to happen that night. He said, the ruler of the world is coming. Jesus knew what was going to happen tomorrow. But as he spoke of this, before he gets to Gethsemane, he speaks of it, but he's calm. He's cool. He's collected. Is he somber? Yes. Is he serious? Oh, yes. But he's calm, cool, collected. But now they get to Gethsemane. But now things are about to change. But now things are going to take a dramatic turn. So they go through the eastern gate, down into Kidron Valley, start making their way up the Mount of Olives on the other side, and they come to a garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And it's not like a garden we would think of with a lot of flowers. It was a grove of olive trees. And perhaps it had a wall around it with an entrance. And perhaps it was owned by a friend who allowed them to use it as a mini retreat because Scripture said Jesus would often go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and he would bring his followers with him. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane was like that little mini retreat close to Jerusalem, but just far enough outside of the hustle and bustle of city life so that Jesus could be alone with his father. This was a habit. In fact, in a little while, Judas is going to show up and betray him. Judas knew exactly where to find him because Jesus is praying here every night. So they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. I have pushed this message out, and I'm happy to say it's actually eclipsed any message I've done at Stonebridge on viewership. And part of that was, well, number one, it's an extraordinary exposition. And I told you this, I think I texted you, with the buzz in our church was just very interesting. But what I mean, let me define exposition quickly. We're taking a segment, it can be a topic, but typically it's a segment, a pericope, a story, a passage of the Bible we're understanding what it meant in the context in which it was written. We're careful to take lessons from the Bible. And then the bridge, the application, is where we can either get in trouble or we can neglect it. And I thought, and I told you this and say it again, it was one of the finest pieces of exposition Mo I've heard in probably five, six years. And so I know a lot of work went into that message. So now that they've heard the introduction, which was very long, you broke a lot of homiletical rules. Right. But it was so effective, which is another case in point. The rules aren't necessarily, you know, they're they're a framework, not a, you know, live and die on. Everyone in that room was glued hearing you do the harmonization of the last few days of Christ's life before he goes to Gethsemane. How'd you get the idea to do that? Well, the Gethsemane passage has always been a passage that I just come back to over and over again. I just glued to it always during the Easter season. I I read it repeatedly, but just throughout the year, I'm constantly reading that because I think it's one of the most underappreciated events in the life of our Lord. So it's it's a passage that I just go to. I use Matthew 26, that account, Mm -hmm. sort of as the basis, Mm -hmm. and Matthew opens up and he basically in there it says he began to be troubled. He began to be distressed. So the word began just leaps off. I mean, so 
prior to that, he wasn't experiencing what he's experiencing. And so I just went back. I used, you know, a typical harmony of the Gospels, found all the other accounts in the Gospels, and I read it, and I thought, okay, but what else is going on? So I just spent a lot of time reading in all four Gospel accounts what was going on, trying to just imagine what's going on in the upper room, and then their walk across the valley toward the Mount of Olives and so on. And I know there's a little bit of disagreement of, you know, when this took place, when that took place, and so on. But I just sort of immersed myself in it, literally for, for weeks. That wasn't something that I just thought up you on You didn't the come out on Saturday night? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I was just trying to just use a sanctified imagination and figure out what was going on as best I could and looked at a couple of resources. Yeah, this happened in the upper room. This happened happened on the walk and this happened right outside the garden and the like. And so that's really what took mm-hmm. place. And I am a big proponent of eye contact. And again, I can thank Rob for encouraging me to preach without notes. I believe that the human interaction with an audience is very, very important, mm-hmm. very powerful. So, yeah. Now, you mentioned harmony, and I like to uh, always go back and just not make presumptions. Harmony of the Gospels is where someone, A.T. Robertson, whomever, has taken the accounts as best they can and aligned them because they do occur in different sequences sometimes. So when we talk about we talk about the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not technically the right definition, but just think of synoptic means similar. And then the outlier is the Gospel of John, who is very different. Just help people as we're listening, because again, I don't don't make the presumption that everyone knows what a harmony is. And there are tons of them both online as well as you can buy a harmony, and they're interesting studies. You pointed out the word troubled. Forgive me if you mentioned this in the message. I did listen to it twice, but it's been a bit of time. When I officiate a funeral, I'll often go to John 14. And in the beginning, he said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then we go to John 14, 6, which most people know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And so I'll use those first six verses to officiate a funeral oftentimes. The word troubled there, Jesus is telling them not to be troubled. And if memory serves, that's the Greek word paroxysmos. I'd have to look it up to be sure, but I think it is. If we go back to chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus, when he said this, became troubled in his spirit. Same word. And we go back further into chapter 11, verse 33. Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping. And the Jews, this is at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping. This, of course, is Lazarus' tomb. And the Jews who came with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So three times now in the Gospel of John, we have this word troubled. And then the fourth and final time, if my memory is accurate, is in 14 later on, verse 27, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So four times in in John, he's talked about troubled. Three times he said, you don't be troubled, but in 1321, he's troubled. And I find that striking because here's the God man and back to your Gethsemane, here's the God man with the eternal weight of tribulation and trouble on his shoulders, separation from God, the father about to be crucified. And I think you said it in the message and I've said it not as well as you did. The separation 
from his father was more painful than the physicality of the crucifixion. Right. But here's this God man who's troubled. But he says to you and me, don't be troubled. Yeah. <laughs> no, you set that up. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you can back clean up on where I'm wrong. You can help me out. Well, no, and Gethsemane, and there are several words used, and when you you compare all the accounts, there are two or three or four different words used to refer to his uh, emotional agony. makeup right there. Yeah, and Luke uses that word, being in agony. He prayed more fervently, and the angel had to come and strengthen him. And he was what, What's your take on that? What's that? The angel strengthening him. When you say my take, what do you mean? So, I mean— we read that and we go, what does it mean? He came and patted him on the back. Did he give him some, you know, here, have a bologna sandwich? I mean, what? no, seriously, what did he do to strengthen, strengthen the God man? man? How does an angel do that? Yeah. You have any ideas? Yeah. No, there are several things in the passage that to me are a mystery, and that's one of them. I mean, I hesitate even bringing this up. In my mind, I used it. I didn't mention this in the message, but in high school, I was a wrestler. And those who've boxed or or wrestled and you are in combat one-on-one, and the the word agony there is uh, agony. uh, uh, Agonizomai. Yeah, so an athletic term. And the combat, it just drains you. So we would have three two-minute rounds. Six minutes doesn't sound like a lot unless you're right there in, in the midst. And there was one kid. We were evenly matched. He was from right here in Franklin, Tennessee, where we are. And we battled each other all the time. But I remember this one particular match. We ended in a tie. We had to go into overtime. And then three one-minute periods in overtime. We were tied at that. We went into a double overtime. And after each period, we would just lay in the corner and our coaches were there with towels and fanning us. And so it's just everything was gone. And... You know, again, it's a horrible, horrible illustration compared to what Jesus obviously is going through. But I just see all of his energy gone. I mean, he said, I'm grieved to the point of death. I think every fiber of his being was geared toward holiness. Every fiber of his being was doing that which pleases the Father. And now the Father, according to Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin... Was to become sin. We can't even begin to comprehend that. So I think just on a human level, that has to be just excruciating. And you know, I think the blood- it's a great, a great depiction. I guess in, in my sanctified, use or sanctified imagination, I'm just wondering if the God man sees an angel appear, it reminds him. Yeah. Not, not that he needed a reminding. Not that he needed, you know, quote, encouragement, but the fact that an angelic being is sent from God the Father to his son is like, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. That's good. Here's a reminder. You don't need it, but here's a reminder that, you know, I've dispatched angels to do all kinds of bidding in eternity, and here's an angel to remind you. I don't know. Well, and the other thing to me that's a mystery, that, and then why did it take three seasons? Why did he not pray, Lord, your will, not my will? And then go find the disciples who were sleeping, walk out. Why did he have to go through this three times? I still don't understand that because he was bent toward doing the Father's will. Did the first two not take? I mean, that is a mystery to me. And and the the number, you know, numerology can get us into trouble, but there's so many threes, you know, three days, three denials, three, you know, three restoratives for Peter. Don't want to make 
too much of that, but I think it's it's interesting to observe. And I, Paul prayed three times. Yep. So Lord, take this thorn. I, I wonder if it's you know, and again, be careful theologically here, but I think we're meant to see the humanity of Jesus at times when we think, well, he's God. He can handle crucifixion. Yeah, but he emptied himself of heaven and heaven's glory. And I remember recently having a conversation with another friend of ours, Seth Hewitt, about what that means, because kenosis has been taught in various ways as well. Did he self-restrain in other words, he's God-man. He's always eternally existed as the God-man, fully God, fully man. He, of course, becomes an infant. He's born in utero he, and so forth. He's he's born a baby. He has to, you know, learn. He walks, talks, all those things. We know very little about him. We had that little glimpse when he is in the temple when he's probably around 12 years of age. And then Scripture falls silent other than to say, is it Luke to say he continued to grow in favor of God and man? Yeah. And then we'd hear nothing about him until his public ministry. But I tend to think, and especially you and I talked about the emotional, experiential level of Christianity today in our churches, as opposed to a biblical, theological, you know, not to say thinking person's faith, but really your your, your feelings aren't as important as what the text is telling us. Can't fact away a feeling. That said, we get keyed in on the way he loved and he was kind and he was merciful and we can over personify if that's possible our view of jesus as opposed to no this is the god man not the man god the god man and for that kenosis and emptying himself it gets them i mean it's a cavalic passage at many levels but to know he emptied himself that he willingly lets them hang him on a cross that he gives up his life they don't kill him yeah yeah, I was just, I've been studying in Galatians. Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. me. Yeah. And then on that human level, you know, you mentioned Philippians 2. He became human and became obedient to, the to point death, now. even death on the cross. And Hebrews 5, even though he was a son, he learned obedience, obedience. through the things he suffered. It wasn't that he was disobedient. And then he suddenly became obedient. I I like using the word submission there. He learned submission because I don't want to overgeneralize, but up until this point, everything the father had asked him to do, he was right in line with. He Mm -hmm. wanted to do that. Now the father is asking a 100% holy, righteous being to be separated from me, to be sin. And so And to have never been separated. I always grab my forearms. I say, what was Jesus like before he was born of Mary? And people give you this kind of, you know, RCA dog. I recognize <laughs> this, but I'm not sure what you're asking me. I go, did he have a, and I grab my wrist, a corporeal being? Or was he some kind of, you know, angelic, supernatural being that could go through time and space? And people look at me like I'm crazy. I go, this is an important question. Yeah. Because when he shows up in the theophanies, Abraham, Jacob, Dan in the lion's den, however you want to define him, he appeared in those settings. They knew who he was, and yet now the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow a virgin, and she's going to conceive, and he's going to gestate for nine months. This stuff is mind-boggling. Yeah, is. Now he's a fully human being, but he's an infant, dependent at every level on a mother's care and being raised. Fast forward, when he is 
dead and buried. He's a man. He resurrects. He's got this post-resurrection appearance that's pretty interesting. He can walk through walls. He can eat fish. He doesn't want people clinging to him, which is another mystery passage. And then he's going to ascend. So the question I ask, back to my earlier sanctified imagination, did he have a corporeal reality to him, eternally existent with the Father, and, of course, we're not neglecting the Spirit, not talking about him at this point. And then the ascension, he's still, he's still the God-man. Yeah. He didn't take on some Steven Spielberg, you know, supernatural personage now that he's in heaven. Right. And I go back to he made man in his image. So that, to me, is mind-blowing, just thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. So when when you talked in that great message about the separation, I'm just thinking this is something he had never known. Never. My father and I are one. I pray that they will be one, John 17, as you and I are one. I mean, there's a, a, a unity. Always do the things that please the Father. I mean, he'd never known anything like this. And so I think, you know, when we set Gethsemane in that context and begin to understand this cup, he had an experiential awareness the night before it actually happened. And I think that accounts for all of the agony that was going on in the garden. It wasn't theoretical. I mean, this was, this was here. I remember years ago, I was in Europe. Cindy and I went to Europe on our 10th anniversary. Her father kindly paid for us for a trip, and we went to the Oberammergau in Germany, the original Passion Play, or actually the second Passion Play. <laughs> the original only happened once. But they do an incredible Passion Play there. It's, it's an eight-hour production. Wow. Four hours, take a lunch break, four hours. I remember the guy who was sort of the, our tour leader did a lecture. He was a Rice University president, theologian, and he did a lecture on the passion of Jesus Christ. He didn't believe in it, but he did a lecture on it. And I remember, I loved the man. I remember talking to him and saying, so why don't you believe this? He looked at me with this kind of condescending, furrowed brow, and he said, how could one person suffering help me? What would you have said to him? <laughs> I mean, he's it, an intellectual erudite guy that I can't joust the dragon with, but yeah. here's a guy that is compartmentalized. Why would somebody else suffering help my condition? Yeah. Yeah, well, my analytical brain would kick in at that point, especially if he were an intellectual and, and, and obviously take him to Galatians and Romans and the propitiation and the substitution. I mean— So why did somebody have to die for me and suffer to pay for my sins? Yeah, and that, of course, comes back to the character of God. I mean, I think in our 21st century culture, again, not to overgeneralize, but I don't think we humans really understand the holiness of God, what that means. Or our sin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe that's two sides of the coin. Yeah, we don't understand how holy God is and how sinful we are and the, the gulf I mean, because we, we, we live with sin. We accommodate sin. It's, it's okay. And, I mean, we don't like talking about the justice of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God. We do enjoy talking about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. But we can't appreciate that without this understanding. And, of course, Paul made that very clear in 
Romans. He so, so you're talking to a person at the gym that you don't, you know, you kind of know, but you know they're not a person of faith, and you're talking to them, and they, they say, Mo, you know, this Jesus of yours dying and suffering. I don't get it, man. Why, why do I have to believe in that? And, okay, God's holy. You can think whatever you want to think, Mo, but why does his painful death and crucifixion and die, why does that matter for me? Well, and I've had this conversation in the gym and because uh, I'm there every day for an hour. And so uh, I have conversations here, there, and yon. And so, uh, yeah, we just, we sort of take it in, in bite-sized pieces. and But we do break it down. We talk about the separation. I use a lot of analogies, you know, parents, kids, husband, wife, that sort of thing, the the separation. And then, you know, depending on who I'm talking to, we, we talk about, you know, when, when you lay down at night and your head is on the pillow, my theology professor always referred to these as the inescapable questions of life. What is going through your mind? Why am I here? Is this all there is? You know you're not going to have this uh, gym body forever. What's, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when you're 60 or 70 or 80? That kind of thing. Then what happens? And so we get into some pretty philosophical questions. And I think if people are honest with themselves— which is hard to do and get them calmed down. If they're honest with themselves, I mean, that, that phrase has always stuck with me since college, the inescapable questions of life. Everyone asks these questions. Mm-hmm. It is a mystery. It is mind-boggling. It is, quote, uh, foolishness, as Paul would say, that the gospel brings me eternal life. Mm-hmm. It is a stumbling block. It humanly doesn't make sense. But, I mean, and, and at that point, we are 100% dependent on the Holy Spirit to say, you know, break through here. And it's just striking to me, and I think your observation about culture where it is today, we, I can't tell you in the, if I've done the past 50 interviews, how we've not touched on how the culture is so different than it was a decade ago. And even the LGBTQAI thing which I mention all the time, not because I'm angry and mad and think it's a horrible diagnostic, although it is, it's because it's become so prevalent and so much in our face and we're intolerant and hateful if we don't embrace. And it's not even just accept. You have to celebrate now. Oh, yeah. You have to endorse and celebrate and cheer them on and otherwise you're a fascist or or, or misogynist or, you know. And I shake my head and I go, how do we get here? And yet the gospel hasn't changed. Yeah. That we're sinful men and women before a holy God and we're in desperate trouble. And is it called the I always get it mixed up, the long the dark night of the soul? Oh yeah. Or the long night was who was that? My brain's got holes in it. Somebody like John Chrysostom or something, but the dark night of the soul and there are those, you know, head on the pillow. There are times when the props are knocked out, you're alone, something sad has happened, and it's like, what is this all about? Yeah. Well, my friend Mo and I have just been having a conversation I've let you eavesdrop on, but I want you to know a couple things. The March 27th, 2022 sermon, you can access it 
on YouTube to watch Mo deliver that message. Also, more Proctor seminars. We'll have information in the show notes. For a nominal fee, if you have Logos, I tell people all the time, they say, Michael, I want to learn Logos. I go, fine, sign up for the seminar. I can't help you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a trainer. I'm a user. That's probably a pretty good metaphor in life. I'm a user, not a trainer. (laughs) And Mo is a consummate trainer. I've sat through at least six or seven of the camps, and I often say, this guy knows how to train. So you will learn how to use Logos, the little videos now, the short ones. I don't mean little and, and diminutive, but they're shorter content to go through something. And then when the updates come out, you do a longer explanation of, okay, why did your computer update Logos 9 point whatever it is? And right. what were the changes? And it's a marvelous program. If you're serious about learning scripture, if you're a Sunday school teacher, a disciple maker, a person just loves to read and study the Bible. This is not just an investment. It, it's a joy to use the product. Anyway, thankful for your role in helping us learn how to study the Bible. Thank you, Michael. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.